Hello and welcome to the Highway to Health show. My guest for this episode is Frank King. Frank is a suicide prevention speaker and trainer, as well as a comedian. You've probably heard his jokes on The Tonight Show, where he was a writer for over 20 years. In this episode, Frank shares with us how he has thought about killing himself more times than he can count. He has fought a lifetime battle with major depressive disorder, but has been able to turn that long, dark journey of the soul into five TED Talks, and he shares his life-saving insights and mental health awareness with associations, corporations, and colleges. And not only does he do so by standing in his truth, but he does it with humor. He believes that where there is humor, there is hope. Where there is laughter, there is life. Nobody dies laughing, he says. The right person, at the right time, with the right information, can save a life. I believe that we still need to raise a lot of awareness about suicide and suicide prevention. And so I'm very happy to be able to welcome Frank into our show. Now, before we go on to today's episode, let's take a moment and talk about our new Vault of Goodies. Our Vault of Goodies is a free directory where you can log in anytime and see each episode in audio and video format in its original, often much longer version. You can even download the actual audio and MP3 format as well as the entire transcript and lifetime access to whatever goodies we have for each episode. To sign up, just head on over to dre.show forward slash goodies, or just click or tap on the link in this episode's description. And now I don't want to keep you any longer. Here is my conversation with Frank King. And remember, you are on the highway to health and I'm your guide to get you there. Are you ready to live ageless? Want to discover alternative health choices, cutting edge nutrition, and fitness for the entire family? Welcome to Highway to Health Show with your host, Dr. E, the stem cell guy, where Dr. E helps you live ageless. And now, here's your host, Dr. E. Frank King, suicide prevention speaker and trainer and comedian. That is correct. Can you say hi to our audience and explain that a little bit? Yes, yeah, so, you know, that question comes up, well almost always in the minds of the people who are listening to me keynote. And so I teach my comedians when I teach comics and speakers. If there's an elephant in the room, you need to address it right away and put it to bed. So I say to them, okay, I know what everybody's thinking. A comedian, depression and suicide. Yeah, a couple of things. Number one, uh, I think a comedian's a good choice because if you think about it, the world's first comedians were the court jesters and their job was to speak truth to power on behalf of the powerless. And I believe I speak truth to the power of mental illness on behalf of those sort of locked in its grip. I believe where there's humor, there's hope. Where there's laughter, there is life that nobody dies laughing. And depression and suicide run in my family. It's called generational depression and suicide. Um, my grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her, my great aunt. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I'll spare you the details, but if you'd like to, you know, hear the story, my first TED Talk, um, A Matter of Laugh, L-A-U-G-H, and Death. I cover it quite thoroughly. And I myself, April 2010, came close enough to dying by suicide. I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. A spoiler alert, didn't pull the trigger, uh, which I always use in my <laughs> keynote. A friend of mine came up after my keynote. He'd never heard me say that out loud before. And he said this, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? So that's the comedian part of the mental health comedian. And you know what? difficult subject. So, you know, comedy, little comic relief helps be digestible. Uh, gives them a little bit of a, a relief from the serious. It's a great way to intensify, by the way, and help them remember 
the serious points I make, if you follow it with something funny, they tend to remember their retention is better for some scientific reason I'm not aware of. But anyway, that's my story. And I started comedy and stand up in 85, 1985. My wife and I were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop, no home. Yeah, just the post office box and answering service. And I opened up and stayed with, lived with in the comedy condos, Jerry Seinfeld, Dennis Miller, and Ellen DeGeneres, and Kevin Nealon and Dana Carvey, back when they were just, you know, comics. So it was an amazing adventure hanging out with those guys because they're all remarkably funny and the majority of them really nice people. Yeah, I'm sure they are. Now, what is it like to spend so much, I mean, it doesn't really have to do with what we're talking about. Now it just dawned on me. What is it like to spend so much time without really a place to call home? I mean, my wife and I, we travel a lot. We've been married for three years and we've lived in three different places, three different countries. But 2,000 nights in a row, that's quite a bit. 2,629, yeah, a little over seven years. Well, we didn't start out to do that. What you find is that you're on the road so much, why pay rent somewhere? So I just tried to keep myself booked, you know, night after night after night. And we were in our late 20s, early 30s. We were young, didn't have any kids or responsibilities. And of course, working with those fascinating people. And there were nights when we stayed in, you know, in motels that they rent by the hour. And <laughs> there weren't always nice hotels. But it was just, I don't know, it, you know, you're young. I'm passionate about doing comedy. People go, do you like doing comedy? You'd have to. You have to love it because it's so difficult otherwise to make a living. So, and we were together. Most of the comedy that traveled the circuit didn't have a spouse along. So we were sort of the junior Ward Cleaver of comedy. I had comics who would tell their managers, look, I need a couple of three weeks with Frank and Wendy. I need to dry out, eat some good vegetarian meals, go to the gym every day because that's what we did on the road. The road either gets you or you get it. And we worked very hard to thrive on the road rather than be burned out by the road. And again, it was an amazing, you know, we look back fondly on that adventure. I'm sure you do. And then after that, you spent a good amount of years, 20 years and writing for The Tonight Show. Is that correct? Yeah, actually, that started when I was on the road. Jay was just hired as the permanent guest host. And Johnny Carson was very mercurial. He would tell his staff on a Friday afternoon late, I'm not working next week, which meant Leno was responsible for four nights of monologues, which was 18 jokes a night, which I believe is 112 jokes. And so he would put the word out to us. They called us fax writers at the time. You know, I need jokes. I need 18 jokes a night for the next four nights. And so I would crank in 12 or 24 jokes a day and average one or two in his monologue every week. And then he got the job. And some of us got carried over into that role in the when he was permanent host of the Tonight Show. And then when he stopped doing it, that was the end of that. But yeah, it was um, kind of a like getting a scratch-off lottery ticket. We would record the Tonight Show back in the day on the old VCR, you know. We carried a VCR with us for that purpose. Get up the next morning, plop the tape in, and turn on the monologue and see if, you know, did you win the 50 bucks from the... And eventually $75 for the joke. And he was good about paying. I never did not get paid for a joke I knew was mine. That's interesting. I didn't know that that's how writers got paid. It's like, if they use your joke, you get paid. Yeah, and if you're on staff, you get a salary. If you're doing it by contract, it's on spec. You're writing on spec. The dream was, and this unfortunately never happened for me, but the dream was that you would do so well as a writer that way under contract that you would be moved in, you'd be plucked out of obscurity and moved into the, you know, into the NBC studios and the Writers Guild 
And some guys did. Some guys made that jump. I never, unfortunately, never made that jump. I see. I see. But you did make another jump. How did you go into suicide prevention now that we really want to talk about the elephant in the room, like you said? Yeah. Well, I always wanted to be, my first job out of college was selling insurance, which I hated with a passion. But I got to see a lot of motivational speakers, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, the Zig Ziglar's, the old school guys. And I thought, man, I could do that if I just had something to say. I just had something anybody wanted to learn. And so for years, decades, I thought, you know, I just, I got nothing to teach anybody. And then the recession hit. That's when I came so close to killing myself. And part of the problem was after the recession, they wouldn't pay me the kind of money they had been paying me just to be clean and funny at a corporate event. They said, Frank, we love you, but we need something for the audience to take away. We need learning objectives. They got to learn something. And I read a book by a woman named Judy Carter. She wrote the Comedy Bible, which is a, about doing stand-up. And she wrote a book called The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. And I picked up the book thinking I had nothing to teach or tell anybody. And about halfway through, it hit me. Well, my grandmother, my great aunt, I came so close. And what I discovered, the way I began to rebrand was I got a TEDx talk in Vancouver, British Columbia. And I simply came out at age 52 as depressed and suicidal. And what I discovered in the roll-up to that was nobody talks about depression or suicide out loud for the most part. But if you mention it to them, most everybody has a story. You get the feeling they just been waiting for somebody to you know, break the ice and go depression and suicide. Matter of fact, I was on a cruise ship. I had a breakfast with a woman who'd seen me perform. And she goes, do you do anything else? I go, yeah, I do public speaking. I just nailed down a TED Talk. She goes, I love the TED Talks. What's the topic? I knew what was coming. So I said, depression and suicide started to count down in my head. Three two, one. She goes, you know, I tried to kill myself twice. We have just met. I mean, that's a rather intimate thing to say. Yeah. Would you like to hear the story? Sure. Her story? She said, first time I was in college, not that serious. Second time, far more serious, she said. She said, I graduated college. I graduated medical school. I had the knowledge, I had the equipment. She said, Frank, I had the IV started in my ankle. Suicide cocktail in one hand, syringe in the other, getting ready to load them up, and the phone rings. So she's conflicted. Do I answer the phone? She thought, well, I better because it might be somebody who would worry, come over and interrupt her. She picks up the phone. It's her 13-year-old son. She goes, I don't know if he heard something in my voice or he had a premonition, but he said, mom, don't do anything. She said, so I didn't. I didn't give up on the idea of suicide. I just decided not to do it that day because I knew he would always feel guilty. Wasn't there something he could say or do to stop me from dying by suicide? Good news, of course, is there are things you could say or do because eight out of 10 people who are at that point are ambivalent. I said, how old is he now? She said, he's 21. I said, does he know his phone call saved your life? And she said, that's which is going to be the name of my book. How do you start that conversation? So my personal book is going to be called Start the Conversation, Life in the Exit Row. That's what led me to, to realize that, that people will pay me to come in simply to start the conversation because Nobody wants to talk about it. But if you start the conversation, it's amazing the things that people will reveal to me or to one another. When I do a talk, I always hang around afterwards. I do a general Q&A. And I say, look, you got a question you want to ask me that you don't want to ask everybody. Like, hey, I'm crazy. Can you help me? <laughs> Just come see me afterwards. And sometimes there's one person. Sometimes there's a half a dozen lined up after I'm done to come up and, you know, because they've got questions about suicide and mental illness. And what? And some of them, sometimes I have a mental illness called chronic suicidality, meaning for me and people like me, the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. And the story I tell is that my car broke down and I had three thoughts unbid. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one. Three, I could just kill myself. 
And people come up afterwards who have had those thoughts and thought they were just some kind of freak, that they were all alone. And when they realize they're not alone, it, the relief is palpable. So that's the ROI for me, besides the paycheck, is it uh, perhaps steered them just far enough off the path of suicide by letting them know, hey, there's lots of us. You know, one of the things since I've been doing the podcast and interviewing all these different people on different topics, I realized that there is so much shame around so many topics, whether it's an eating disorder, whether it's a sexual dysfunction, whether it is an urinary incontinence, and now even suicide, that it seems to be that commonality that as human beings, we have the shame surrounding pretty much everything. We're trying to be perfect in all these many ways, and we're afraid to show those vulnerabilities. We don't have that, but the theme is the same. All these people have said the exact same thing that you did. As soon as I opened the box, I start seeing people and they know someone or they've been there or they've experienced it. I cannot think of something more important as suicide prevention when we talk about all these different things. That's kind of like the ultimate price to pay. So why do you think we're not doing more about it? I think, and I said this in my first TED Talk, that uh, mental illness, thoughts of suicide, each one has a stigma, by the way, separate stigma. They're sort of like alcoholism was... Uh, 60, 75 years ago, you know, the Alcoholics Anonymous were anonymous for a reason because people felt like alcoholism was a moral failing, a character flaw. And I think mental illness and thoughts of depression are sort of there right now where people haven't wrapped their mind around it's a disease, it's an illness. Like alcoholism, pretty much everybody accepts now. Drug addiction isn't an illness. And not everybody's come to the conclusion. They think, you know, if you were stronger, I mean, even the president said it one time, you know, he said, I could wring his neck for saying it. He said, you know, the soldiers who come back from Afghanistan and Iraq who are strong don't get PTSD. It has nothing to do with strength or character or moral fiber. Or, or toughness. You know, it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's trauma. It's some of us are wired that way from birth. Yeah, so, but I think it's very much like alcoholism was. Nowadays, alcoholism and drug addiction, especially in Hollywood, it's, you know, it's a resume item. It's a best-selling memoir. It's, the best paid actor in the world is Robert Downey Jr., I think, and he's a recovering junkie. So, <laughs> yeah. And by the way, I think Robin Williams did not, I believe he was bipolar, and he did not reveal that or his thoughts of suicide because in LA, in Hollywood, if you're going to make a movie, the production company buys a life insurance policy on your life in case you died during production. That way they recover their costs. And if you have had, you came out as depressed and suicidal. There's a question of whether the life insurance company would write that policy. So it could be career ending. I mean, there were other things in his life. His sitcom had failed. His memory was going. He had something similar to Parkinson's. I think he had heart surgery, which depresses a lot of people. So it was a cascade of things. But that's why I believe he never came out as depressed. So the thing about and I totally agree with you. I think that we're not recognizing it because we're seeing it as a lack of character in a way as a failure. But it's like if somebody has cancer, you're not going to go around and say, oh, my God, you failed. You're such a terrible person because you got this and you called it upon yourself or you can try harder. And it really baffles me because I understand how our brain, how our neurotransmitters, how everything is firing in there. And sometimes there is a failure in that mixture in that cocktail and how we react, how our neurons fire. So many different factors. So, and this isn't really a question now that I'm thinking about it. It's just something that I find shocking that as a society, outwardly we say, yeah, let's raise awareness and it's, you know, mental health and all these things. But in reality, the people suffering it, 
they're still not coming out. Many of them aren't. No, and I've got a cousin who has bipolar, and she's been shunned by her family. She said, you know, I oftentimes wish I had cancer because people would be throwing fundraisers for me. They'd be bringing meals over to my house. But you could see, and they wouldn't blame her. Even if she smoked, they wouldn't blame her for her cancer. You know, they wouldn't say, so-and-so committed cancer and died. Even if you smoke, you're not really committing cancer. Plus, people always ask, why don't more people come out and let others know they're depressed and having thoughts of suicide? There are certain states in the U.S. where if you do that, if you come out to a psychologist or psychiatrist or a therapist and say, look, yes, I'm depressed. Yes, I'm having thoughts of suicide. Yes, I've got a plan. They're bound by law. Yeah, for three days without your belt and shoelaces. It's called an IDO, involuntary detention order. And in my case, because of my chronic suicidality, if they said, are you depressed? Yes. Thoughts of suicide? Yes. Do you have a plan? Hell, I got half a dozen plans. What do you want to hear? The question they don't ask is, are you going to kill yourself? Because I would go, no, why would I kill myself? <laughs> I mean, I've lived this way all my life. And then the last question I think they should ask, if I said, no, I'm not going to kill myself, would be, okay, well then, Frank, tell me why not. So you end on a positive note. Give me a reason why you're not going to do it. So I think if we allow people to give voice to those feelings without being locked up, then maybe more people would be forthcoming to save some lives. Because you hear it all the time. We had no indication. I had no idea he was going to do that. So my job, again, is to start the conversation, give people permission to give voice to it, whether it's to their lawyer or their spouse or their family, you know, to build a community to help them with that's one of the things we do in our book, the book you're writing on men's mental fitness is part of your safe care plan. You need to build a community, people that understand what you're dealing with and are there for you and at the ready in case something goes sideways. And where you can feel safe as well to open up and to bring out all those things and basically just get the help that you need. Because one of the things that you just brought up, which again, is something that is incredibly surprising to me, is somebody like Robin Williams, who has at least from the outside point of view. He has no lack of money. He has no need to do all these things. Yet he felt like he couldn't come out because it would jeopardize his livelihood, really, his career, all these things. So if somebody like him, who apparently doesn't have all these other challenges of needing to support a family, of doing all these things, if Robin Williams had never been hired again after he came out, he'd be fine. He'd be such for life. But a lot of other people, they feel, well, how am I going to support my family? How am I going to support my children? How am I going to pay rent? How am I going to do all these things? So obviously, they're being bullied into not calling for help. Yes, because they're worried about the stigma attached. It frightens people if you say you're suicidal. They don't know what to say. That's, again, one reason that people hire me is so that what I try to do is I give them like mental health first aid tools. They put their mental health first aid toolkit. So if somebody says I'm depressed and suicidal, they can put together kind of a mental health first aid action plan. You're kind of like an EMT. You're not going to fix them, but you can get them professional help as an EMT would. I had a heart attack a couple of years ago, and you know the EMTs didn't come in and put in two stents in my arteries, but they got me stabilized. <laughs> well, and you to the hospital. Yeah, they got me to the hospital where they had somebody who does it all day long. And again, back to the alcoholism, drug addiction, Robin was very forthcoming about his addiction, treatment, and recovery. He joked about it, but never a word which I think surprises some people when I get up on stage and you mentioned it, you uh, vulnerable, especially with men. Uh, you don't see a lot of vulnerability in public. I've had guys come up after I've spoken and you know, nobody else can see them, their face with me and they're crying. 
I'm sure. You know, and we were talking about this briefly before we started, but you brought something up that I was shocked to hear how high it is. The proportion of men versus women who commit suicide is, what is it? 80% are men. The good news is 8 out of 10 people who are thinking about suicide are ambivalent, so you can do something, you can say something. Three times as many women attempt suicide as men, but men tend to complete because they often use a gun. That's the difference. And there are occupations, and I focus on three of the top 10 occupations. By the way, the only three that are proactively doing something about it, the other seven know it's a problem, but they haven't decided they're going to do, they're going to address it. Veterinarians, dentists, and the construction industry. And construction is number one in the U.S., at-risk occupation for suicide. They're all doing something about it. They know it's a problem and they want to curb, you know, they want to stem the, the flow of the tide. What do you think the other ones aren't? I mean, it is, it is shocking to me to hear all these numbers. I approached the number of farmers groups and the number one is construction followed by excavation and mining and then farming, fishing, and forestry. So farmers are in the top five. And I reached out to a couple of farm bureaus. They're, you know, like associations of farmers. And they said, we think it's in poor taste that you're reaching out to us. And I said, you guys are in the top five at-risk occupation for suicide. Farm income's down by half since 2013. With the tariffs, you know what? You are going to have a wave of suicides if you don't do something. And so they'll eventually, you know, but farming is a kind of male-heavy business. Men don't tend to reach out. That's why we wrote the book. It's an anthology. It's 40 stories of men with a problem, bankruptcy, drug addiction, that they'll read it and see how another man is coping and then attempt to cope the same way. That's what we're hoping. Yeah, because I think that just putting out that example and allowing men to see that, number one, they're not alone. Number two, there's a solution. And number three, that there's a path that they can follow and a couple of set of next steps that they can take, I think would be very important. And we wrap a lot of clinical information and resources, you know, and techniques and practices and exercises around the stories. In Australia, they've come up with something called the Shed Project. Shed in Australia is like a garage, like on the side of your house. And they found that, men, if you're sitting at Starbucks looking at each other in the eye, you're not going to say much about anything that's important. If you are both under the hood of a car and you're not looking at each other, they will talk just about anything. Or if they're in a boat fishing and they're facing away from each other, they will talk just about anything as long as they don't have to stare each other in the face. So that's why the folks in Australia started that shed project. No matter what it is, with woodworking, you know, metalworking, car working on a car, whatever it is, as long as they're not, you know, looking at each other in the eye. That's interesting. That now I can't help but think about this now that he mentioned I didn't realize that it was mostly farming, the different fields around that have this problem. And I can't stop but to think that there must be something other than just a mental or a psychological reason. You know, all these industries, they're very heavy on pesticides. They're very heavy on all these different chemicals. They're very heavy on all these different toxins. So all of those things affect the central nervous system. We see a lot of patients with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and dementia who were formerly farmers because of those reasons. So do you think this also plays a big role in it? I believe that play a role in it. I, when I was at a veterinary conference, they were talking about... There are a number of diseases that animals get. Uh, one is called Bartonella. And Bartonella presents, and there's 26 symptoms for an animal with Bartonella. And if it manifests itself in a human, one of the symptoms is depression. And I mentioned that to the gentleman uh, that I work out with, who's a veterinarian. And he said, Yes, Frank, and there's a roundworm in raccoons. 
if a child is someplace where they are, you know, interacting perhaps in the yard with raccoon poop, the ringworms are in the, and then the kid puts his fingers in his mouth, then the ringworms, they migrate to the brain and it often presents as spinal meningitis. It presents as if it were spinal meningitis and then they do a test and they find out that the kid's got roundworm in his brain. Now, if you find it early enough, you can recover your motor skills. If you don't recover it you know, early enough, you're going to lose your motor skills. But that's one of those things where there's a movement among the veterinarians because there's at least a half dozen diseases that animals have that could be transferred in blood and saliva in the feces of animals that veterinarians and veterinary technicians come into contact with all the time. So there's a question, you know, uh, how much of this is, or pesticides. i got a friend, well, my veterinary friend. Back in the day, he's 56. Back in the day, they handled a lot of chemicals back then without any kind of protective gear on their hands, on their, you know, in their breathing. So who knows what he breathed? Because, he, yeah, he has Parkinson's, and it's idiopathic. They don't know why. It doesn't run in his family. They have no idea why he has Parkinson's. It may very well be he was exposed to something over and over in the practice that caused that neurological damage. Yeah, that's very likely the cause. And the thing is, we like to play CSI and figure out exactly what this motive is, right? <laughs> be able to say, this is the one thing that caused it. Yeah. But in reality, with 99% of these things, it's just the accumulation of everything. It's like, I worked for a long time with the autistic community, right? And we're working with children with autism. And parents there are very adamant about saying it's the vaccines. Now, I don't believe the vaccines are completely safe. I also don't believe that they're the only culprit or that they're the direct cause for autism. I just think that they're a very big component of it. But it also, you have to consider every other toxic insult that many of these children are exposed to from, you know, Wi-Fi radiation, different pesticides, non-organic, different foods, so all these different things. And the same is true for this. You know, maybe they were exposed to all these pesticides. Maybe they went over and over and over, and then you just become more predisposed to developing it. We have an initiative, a digital tech initiative. We go out and speak on digital media addiction, and we have a geneticist on board, and his field of study is epigenetics. And I heard him lecture, and he said, you know, you could have, let's say, um, cancer runs in your family. However, that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get it it's like a switch. It could be like this, you know, it's off. Then there's some environmental exposure and click, on comes the cancer gene or whatever. My wife has lymphedema. It's idiopathic. She was talking to a friend who lives somewhere in Scandinavia, also has it. The thing those two women have in common is that my wife's dad worked forced labor in the lead mines in Japan during the Second World War as a prisoner of war. So he was exposed to a great deal of lead. And this young woman's father actually worked for you know a living in a lead mine. And so it's conceivable that both of their fathers, you know, the lead affected their genome or their genetic makeup and they both passed it on to their, you know, their daughters by way of their genes. It's, you know, again, it may have been like this and all of a sudden you're exposed to lead and boom you've got the problem. So, Which is also another very interesting thing that we're finding out about, that all of these things that turn on and off certain genes of ours, they don't have an effect on us because we're already adults, because our central nervous system is developed, whatnot, but we do pass them on to our offspring. And that's why we're seeing so many other disorders right now, two or even three generations below after 
certain toxic exposures, for instance, in the 60s and the 70s of all these things, because people really didn't know that they had to, you know, use protective gear and not handle certain things and all these things that we take for granted now. But the thing is, we look at them like, oh, they never got any of that. They were strong. No, they developed those mutations and they passed them on. Yes. Well, and you know, my, um, I, I grew up in the South in North Carolina, which was, um, you know, tobacco road. They grew tobacco there for a long time. They don't do much anymore, but my grandmother, my grandfather, my friend's relatives, you know, grandparents, they, you know, my granddad smoked for 70 years and never got cancer. Well, you know what? Uh, first of all, he was probably eating meat that he grew, eating vegetables he grew, he drinking milk that he, you know, he got out of the cows. And the tobacco, he probably cured his own tobacco, rolled his own cigarettes. It wasn't chock full of chemicals to make it more addictive. It was just the tobacco and paper. And smoked to a day, not a pack. Yeah. Yeah, not a pack or two or three. So I had this conversation with people my age. I'm 62. Do you guys remember any kid having autism when we were a kid? No. Anybody on the spectrum? No. Anybody with ADD or ADHD? No. I mean, I had ants in my pants. That was my diagnosis, but I was a glass clown. But I can't help but wonder if the uptick in all these illnesses is not somehow related to the environmental exposure. Oh, it has to be. Yeah. There's no question about that, at least not in my mind. And, and many researchers tend to agree with this, uh, especially when you look at, for instance, certain conditions like autism in particular, and you see all the different researchers. It is those who start going into environmental sciences and start identifying all these different toxins that we're exposing ourselves to, not just in our environment, but from what we eat and all these things that they play a tremendously large role that has been ignored for God knows how long. So... I think it's about time that we start recognizing that and addressing it. Well, and there was a study in Ohio of the Amish or a group like that, where they the women would be pregnant. They would work in the barn in the fields until just before they delivered. And as soon as the child could be carried in a sling, they're back in the barn. And they discovered that the children, by virtue of this, had far better resistance to a wide variety of diseases because they've been exposed to the bacteria and such in the barn and in the fields as they were, you know, in vitro. And so I think the Amish or whoever it was started having women come out and work, pay. They would pay to work in the barn and the fields as they rolled up to their due date. Because, you know, I worry all these kids with the Purell, you know, just over and over and over and over. As my mom was saying, you know, whatever, she called it clean dirt, whatever doesn't. Well, they started banning that. You know, they started getting rid of all those things, the hand sanitizers everywhere. And sometimes there is an indication for those, but also we realize that we need these bugs. I've been talking, I've had a couple of people here and we need those. We've evolved millions of years as a single unit. And now suddenly we want to get rid of them. And guess what? See everything else that we're developing, your gut microbiome and how that controls your different neurotransmitters and all these different things that happen. Now, I don't know if this is accurate, but I saw earlier today as I was preparing for this interview, it actually happens that today, September 11, as we're recording this, is Suicide Prevention Date. Is that correct? Yeah, World Suicide Prevention Date, I believe. Yeah. As you might imagine, I've got a number of engagements in September because it's, uh, I think it may be a Suicide Prevention Month as well. So I've got a couple of dates coming up and my next TED Talk, by the way. (laughs) <laughs> he bragged my fifth TED talk. Thank you. Which, by the way, is a little funnier than my previous four. It's about mental health, but it's called Mental Health and the Orgasm. The subtitle is Treating Your Depression Single Handedly. 
<laughs> my opening joke is this is my second favorite handheld device. So, <laughs> but you know, you think people don't talk about suicide. They really don't talk about orgasms or masturbation. I'm telling you, I've discovered as I've been rolling up to this one that, you know, if I mention depression, suicide out loud, we have a conversation. If I mention masturbation, orgasm, you know, they run. It's something everybody does, but nobody talks about it. And it has palliative effects. I mean, it lowers cortisol. It you know, increases endorphins. It helps to alleviate pain. It perpetuates our species. Yeah, and it perpetuates the species. I mean, whoever designed the body was pretty smart when he made it feel that good. Yeah, so... Before we wrap this episode up, though, normally I always ask our guests to give us their top two or three recommendations, pieces of actionable advice. And probably in this case, it's also very valuable to share what somebody can do when they recognize or what are the telltale signs that someone you know or love might be depressive, might be suicidal. Okay, let's go through those. Depression, let's their personal hygiene go. You know, they become less concerned about their personal hygiene. Oftentimes, people, you hope you're depressed, you will say, I just couldn't get out of bed shower. Um, eat too much, can't eat. Sleep too much, can't sleep. Doesn't take the joy in social activities they used to take, you know, great joy in. A feeling of hopelessness. That For me, that was a big one, hopelessness. What you should say, people are like, what should I say to somebody I believe is depressed? Well, first of all, sometimes you don't have to say anything. Just listen. Just be a good, active listener. But if you're going to say something, don't say this. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, turn that frown upside down. Have you tried fish oil? Although I read today that omega-3 of all the vitamins and minerals and oils is most effective against depression. What you should say to somebody who's depressed is, look, I'm here for you and I mean it. I know that you're not crazy, lazy, or self-absorbed. I know that depression is a mental illness. The good news is with time and treatment, things will get better. I'll take the time. I'll help you get the treatment. And here's the question that you should ask, and it's very difficult. But you should ask them, are you having thoughts of suicide? Now, there's an old wives' tale that you should never mention the S word in front of somebody who's depressed because I love this. It might give them the idea. Suicide, what a great idea. But you have to ask. And I have trouble asking that. I practice in the mirror before I'm going to ask somebody that. So let's say they don't admit they're suicidal, but you suspect. And by the way, if it pops into your head, they may be suicidal. Trust your intuition. Something has occurred that you may not be consciously aware of. But here's what to look for if they haven't admitted they're suicidal. Again, eat too much, can't eat, sleep too much, can't sleep, drugs and alcohol to excess, not to party, but to kill, you know, to self-medicate. If they are acquiring the means, whether it's a gun and ammunition or stockpiling medications, if they talk a lot about death and dying, write a lot about death and dying, Googling death and dying, if they're giving away their prized possessions, this is very dangerous. I talked to a guy the other day who'd gone through that. He'd given away all his prized possessions because he wanted to make sure they went to the people he wanted them to go to when he was gone. And here's a counterintuitive one, very dangerous. If they're depressed for it seems like ever, and then all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, they're happy. They may have chosen time, place, and method, and they know the pain is finite. And that, by the way, is at the heart of suicide. People say to me, why did he want to kill himself? I don't think he wanted to kill himself. I didn't want to kill myself. I just wanted to end the pain. So, if someone is suicidal, what do you say? Well, first thing you say is don't do it. And the second thing you say is, do you have a plan? If they have a plan, what is your plan? If it's detailed, that's very dangerous. Then you need to get them on the phone with a suicide prevention lifeline. Or if it's a young person texting, you text the word connect to 741741. That's a text line. And generally, somebody on the other end will be a person about that age. They always ask, when do you dial 911? 
when they're a threat to themselves, an immediate threat to them or other people. Now, if they're depressed and suicidal, but the plan is not particularly well formed, then I would go to that next question. Well, are you going to kill yourself? And if they say no, then you finish up with, okay, well, tell me why not. How come you're not? That way you finish on a positive note. That's my standard advice in all my keynotes, you know, is because people want to know what to do or say. And I think that that also helps those of us who might be on the other side of seeing someone go through this realize that it is a difficult conversation, but we need to have the guts to have it. We need to have the guts to say those words because it's not easy. I mean, I've never been in that position that I need to face someone and say that, but just thinking about it. It's got to be hard saying like, you know, have you thought about killing yourself and being that serious, especially when it's somebody you care or you love about? Yeah, but the good news is you can make a difference. You can save a life. I always say that. And you can do it by doing something as simple as starting that difficult conversation. Because again, eight out of 10 people who are circling up to suicide, A, they're ambivalent and B, 90% of them in the week before they do it give you clues, direct and indirect, that it's going to happen. You just have to know what to listen for, know what to look for. Because again, eight out of 10 of them don't really want to die. You know, I want somebody to go, hey, look, stop right there. We need to have a chat. Well, this has been a very enlightening conversation. I've learned a lot of things. I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot of things as well. Where can people go to find out more about you other than your TED Talks? I know that you do a lot of speaking. I know that you do some training and your book's about to come out. So can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, the book's called Guts, Grit, and the Grind, a men's mental mechanical manual. It looks like an automobile owner's manual and it's got all these automobile metaphors in it because we figured that would appeal to guys. For example, don't you wish the man in your life had a check engine light? Light comes on, he goes to the mental mechanic, the guy hooks him up to the analyzer and goes, Bob, no wonder you're depressed, you're two quarts low on serotonin. So it's a lot of that sort of, I added the humor and the mechanical metaphors. But again, it was one of those two other co-authors went to Barnes & Noble looking for a book on men's mental health and couldn't find anything. She thought, dear God, there's a vacuum here we need to fill. So if you want to find me, TheMentalHealthComedian.com TheMentalHealthComedian.com And here's the advice I give people in my keynote. I say, look, if you're suicidal, call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline or text the Lifeline. If you're just having a really bad day and you're living with mental illness, call somebody who's crazy because we're less likely to be judgmental. We're not going to tell you what you should be doing. We won't, as they say in the business, shirt all over you. We'll just listen and sort of co-sign the BS you're going through. And that's oftentimes all it takes is just just listen. And my phone number is on my website. And occasionally after this podcast, somebody will call up and they're amazed. They're like, this is your, this is your cell phone? I go, well, I said it was my cell phone number. It's on my website. I said, give me a call if you're having a really crappy day. And it happens all phone calls, texts, Facebook messages. Anytime anybody's got a question about suicide, all my friends got together and thought, well, he's suicidal. He'll know. <laughs> well, Frank, Thank you so much for joining us. And before we go, I do want to take a moment and acknowledge you for your journey, for sharing this, and for realizing that this is such a grave need and doing all that you're currently doing to help others in this position. So thank you for that. Hey, man, got to keep my tribe alive. <laughs> Absolutely. So one last question before we go. Did you have a good time in the Highwood Health? I did have a good, uh, and, I've, and by the way, I've got a self-care plan. 
and I meditate, I meditate, I work out like an Olympian, and I watch my diet, and I get a good night's sleep. So it's, you know, it's not all about pharmacology. At least for our listeners, rarely is it about pharmacology. As a matter of fact, myself, even as a physician, that usually is kind of like the last step, just right before surgery. Everything else, you know, lifestyle, what you're doing, and, you know, what you're eating, and how good you're taking care of yourself. Mindfulness is so important. It has been in my life, and I always try to emphasize that for my patients. Yeah, I believe in a holistic approach. It's not just one item. It's, you know, that's my safe care plan. Plus, I built a community around me and there are people who know and love me who know I can go to and say I'm depressed and they don't freak out and they don't. Yeah, a lot of the times that's all we need. So thank you so much for stopping by, for everyone listening. Thank you once again for tuning in. You know, as usual, you can find everything that Frank and I just spoke about. You can find all those links. If you're listening to this as a podcast, you just scroll down or find the episode description on your app and you'll find the links there. If you're watching this on YouTube, you know where the description is and you can find everything down there. I will see you here next week. Thank you for listening to Dr. E's Highway to Health show, helping you learn the science of living ageless. Did you enjoy the show? Please like, share, and subscribe where you listen to podcasts. Dr. E wants to hear from you. Go to dre.show. Again, that's dre.show. Until next time, this is Dr. E's Highway to Health, helping you live ageless. Wow, that was a great conversation, wasn't it? I am so grateful to have had a chance to talk to Frank and to have him share his experience and his expertise with all of us. I really liked how he faces this very serious issue with humor. I think that laughter, humor, and happiness in general are a great antidote for many things. What were your favorite takeaways from this episode? Share them with us on social media or in our website. Remember that you can find the links to everything on dre.show. And before we say goodbye, I want to remind you to sign up for a new Vault of Goodies. It is a completely free resource where you can find goodies related to pretty much every episode we've had, some exclusive episodes which have not been released here, and many other things. Just head on over to dre.show forward slash goodies and request your free access. But that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You've been listening to Frank King and Dr. E talk about suicide awareness and prevention. Thank you for tuning in. I'll see you here next week. And remember, you are on the highway to health and I'm your guide to get you there.